Rock is a native of New York City. His childhood and youth were spent in New York, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and from, um, and from age 11 on in Los Angeles, California. Dr. Rock is a product of Christian education through Oakwood College. He uh, graduated from the School of University of Detroit with his Master of Divinity in Sociology, Vanderbilt University, where he earned his Doctor of Ministry and Doctor of Philosophy degree, both in religious ethics. Pastor Dr. Rock and his wife Clara has three daughters, uh, four grandsons, one granddaughter, and one great-grand and great-grandson. Well decorated. He has, he has a lot to fight with the enemies in the gates. During uh, his more than 60 years of church employment, he pastored in the states of South Carolina, Georgia, uh, Florida, Michigan, New York, Nevada, Arizona, he also served for several years as in the Ministerial Association for the Southern Union Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, headquartered in Decatur, Georgia. From April 1971 until July 1985, he served as the eighth president of Oakwood College, now Oakwood University in Huntsville, Alabama. He left that, that post for 16 years and um, served as vice president of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists with office in Silver Spring, Maryland. He resigned from that position on January 2002. During that period, he spent 11 years from 1991 to 2002 as chairman of the board of the Loma Linda University and Hospitals, the only African-American to do so, so far. Dr. Rock. Dr. Rock is founder and chairman of Operation Reach Back. He'll be telling you a little about that afterwards. Uh, this is the Association of Black Adventist um, Professionals, an international organization dedicated to the recognition of social aspects of the gospel. He loves to write. Boy, does he love to write. He has authored nine books from 1988 to 2001, or I should say recently, we should open that up to 2014, and contribute a regular column to Faith uh, Alive uh, for uh, his denominational uh, weekly news journal, The Adventist Review. And his latest book, as some of you are reading it through, some of us are reading it through, Something Better, our present devotional book. Amen? Dr. Rock also loves evangelism and conducted soul-winning 
campaigns in numerous cities in the United States as well as, as London, England, Accra, Ghana, Nairobi, Kenya, uh, Botswana, um, Zimbabwe, uh, no, uh, Novosibirsk, um, Russia, I can't even pronounce that one. I guess he could speak Russian. And Bucharest, Romania. <laughs> he, ha he is a third generation Seventh-day Adventist. He firmly believes in the efficacy of the word of God as this, with special emphasis on the qualities of justice and mercy as modeled in righteousness by faith in Christ. We are so happy to have back home our very own pastor, our friend, Dr. Calvin B. Rock. After the choir, our adult choir, the next voice that we will hear is that of Dr. Calvin Rock. May God bless you. Test. When I think about the introduction to the pastor just now, um, it reminds me of how God is still in the business of explosive blessings, powerful blessings. It is better to obey than to sacrifice. And, a, and an obedient child seems as though he gets everything. And this his life is pretty much the antithesis of what it's like to be obedient. He'll take you places you've never been before. He'll put you in front of people you never thought you'd sit in front of before. And he'll bless you like he's never blessed you before. When I think about the Lord. Show. 
afternoon, everybody. I am really happy for lots of reasons, one of which is that I could hear this good music this morning from our praise singers, the quartet that just sat down, and that song that the choir sang, wow. As old as I am, I've never heard that before. <laughs> really, really nice. Thank you. And they look good too, don't they? Yeah, they look good. They look like they thought about it. Like they thought about it. Planned it. For that, we're praising the Lord. I want to thank your pastor for his kind invitation. I think part of it may be <laughs> he wants some golf lessons. But <laughs> well, we'll, we'll work on that. But it's really great to be back home with the family, to see each of you, and to be involved in praise and worship here today. And I, I believe, uh, well, let me say too, that thank you for your prayers for me, for my wife, really, and our family. Is this being streamed? Can they see this? Maybe delayed or whatever? I just want to say hello, Clara. I'll be back soon. And hi, Cheryl, our oldest daughter is there taking care of her this morning. But we just got back from Loma Linda, and about a month, she had two operations during the month of January. And while she is pretty much wheelchair-bound, she's getting stronger all the time. And she's still giving orders. She told me a few weeks ago, she said, you know, if you're going to be my caregiver, you really need to get a uniform. <laughs> and before I could get over that, I was trying to get her to take her water one day and her pills. And she said, oh, here you come with that water again. I said, well, Clara, you got to take your pills. She said, do me a favor. I said, what? Get lost. So you know, she still got fire and imagination. I told her I would, but I know she'd find me anyway, so there's no need me going anywhere. So we're still having fun and uh, thanking you for your prayers. And I want to congratulate the church. I come by once in a while, and I see the deacons working on the property, keeping things looking good. Keep up the good work proud of that and we're praying for you as well I do have a message that um, involves black history I tried to focus it in that direction Pastor Madden is right I, writing is a passion and a love and I've just finished a manuscript that I've sent to one of our publishing houses just this week with the help of Sister Gail, Sister Gail Ellis. I told her the other day, I think one of the reasons that 
God sent us this way is because she lives here. And she's really been a wonderful help to me and, and um, the things I've been trying to do. But we'll get to that maybe in another month or so when the book is out. And I hope you're enjoying the Morning Watch book, those of you who have it. I trust it's a blessing to you and your family. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this, your holy Sabbath again. Lord, we look forward to these moments when we can be with you and with your people. Thank you for all that has been said and done. And that our spirits can be lifted and that we can now open the word for study. And we ask as we do so that your Holy Spirit will speak to us and uplift us and give us staying power in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Genesis chapter 4. The book of Genesis chapter 4. Are we all right back there? The book of Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 13. Let's make sure we're all set to go. Just give me a little signal, gentlemen, when you're ready. And if I can't do anything here, you come up here and help me. make sure we've got it together. Meanwhile, we're looking at Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to read beginning with verse 8. Genesis chapter 4. Brethren, if you don't hear. And the word of God reads as follows. In fact, do you have your Bible with you? Amen. Your iPad or whatever. So stand with me. Let's stand. We've been sitting for a while. Let's stand. And let's read Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 8. And I am reading from the New King James Version, my favorite version, but you're reading from whatever you have, and it might be a little different, but that's all right. Everybody, verse 8. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. 
When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Thank you. You may be seated. Of course, the verse that claims our attention, the kernel of what this passage gives us, and that on which I wish to concentrate is verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The question, am I my brother's keeper, opens up to our vision a world of spiritual emphasis and good and is along with John chapter 19 verse 5 one of the most unexpected places in the Bible from which such good can come. John chapter 19 5 is where Pilate said behold the man. Pilate. Pilate, who gave Jesus over to crucifixion. And here Cain, who has just killed his brother Abel, asks the question, am I my brother's keeper? And in doing so, opens up a world of spiritual thought. And it is answered all through the Bible, am I my brother's keeper? We have it answered, in fact, in God's instructions to Israel when he told his people that they should open their hearts, open their gates and their hearts to the stranger. You remember reading all those references about the stranger within your gates, right? It is also answered in the Ten Commandments, in the last five especially, Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. All of those answer the question and tell us, in fact, that I am my brother's keeper. And Jesus, when he said, giving us the golden rule, do unto others how? Answered the question. In fact, we are keeper. But I think that the most graphic characterization or display or answer is that given in Luke chapter 10. In the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I think that the parallel is especially apropos or appropriate for us in a Black History Month discussion. For you see, here is a man who knows that in another situation, if the situation were reversed, the fellow in the ditch would not help him. But nevertheless, he was his brother's keeper. 
And we Christian African-Americans are likewise positioned. And by that I mean our brother who had us in slavery, our brother who built the boats and brought us over to work us like brute animals, our brother who lynched us for sport and castrated us for spite, our brother our sibling in the human race whose sexual appetite for our black women was so voracious and so rapacious that by the time slavery was over, the millions of jet black people brought over from Africa had been diluted and a whole new race of people was born called colored. Our brother had a problem then, and that problem still remains. It is a problem called prejudice and racism. It is a problem called racial superiority. We see it not only in the history of bygone decades and centuries, but we still see it. Our brother has a problem, and we are our brother's keeper, meaning we have to help him. We see the problem when we go to get a bank loan we see it because we're still the last ones hired and the first ones fired. We see it in white flight. When we move in, they move out. We see it in redistricting that's going on in the United States right now, whereby powerful forces are drawing gerrymandering lines in the states to make sure that our brother gets his people in office. We see it in the United States Senate where there are 100 senators and just one or two black. And most years there have been none. We see it in the dearth of coaches in our college's athletic programs, the athletic programs of our colleges and universities. And we see it in the major sports leagues and their lack of coaches as well. We see it in the unfair justice system. And I have talked to more than one black judge and attorney who has said, it is a fact that when they pick up a black boy on the corner and they take him in, he had better confess to it whether he did it or not. Because if he doesn't confess, the jury will give him 20. But if he does confess, the judge may give him six or seven. We see it in the way that this nation has treated its first black president. Our brother 
has a problem. Our sibling is sick. Our sibling believes that he is better than we are for whatever reasons and is determined. No, it's not everybody. May I pause? Not everybody. Thank God. Many are different. But what we see in our nation is a tragic rejection. And when you read where people are shooting into the White House and landing drones on the White House lawns and driving their cars in rabid animosity and heated indignity, when you turn on your radio and you hear talk show after talk show, wherever you go in this country, berating the president. And when you turn on certain TV stations and they say they're fair and balanced, but all they want is to ding and down and, and, and dog the president. You know that our brother has a problem. Our brother has a problem when they have accused him of not being born in an American city and that he doesn't have the right religion and, and when they say that he doesn't even love America and on and on, you know the story. Our brother, what I'm trying to lay here as a foundation for what comes next is that our brother, many of them, suffers from a deadly, lethal disease. And since we are our brother's keeper, we are mandated to help him. We've got to help our brother. We just can't sit back and listen and shake our head and pray. We've got to do something. And I've come all the way from Rhodes Ranch. <laughs> to make some suggestions today as to how we Samaritans can help our brother. Number one, I'd like to say that we can help our brother reminding him that the history he has written is deficient. It is unfair, and it is woefully lacking. First of all, with regard to the contributions of African Americans to American society. And you heard some of it with our young people this morning, and I appreciate that from our school children. And let me build on it by saying that one of the glaring omissions, and if our, if our brother only knew this, what I'm trying to say is that if our, if our brother knew it, if, if, if our brother could get this, maybe it would help him overcome his sickness. If he knew that beginning the Revolutionary War, there was a man named Crispus Attucks, an escaped runaway slave, a runaway slave, who stood up and fought to overcome oppression. And in the Civil War, while there were many thousands of whites who also died in the cause of justice. Thank God for that kind, that unit 
of our brother's family willing to help us all along the way. But 20% of the U.S. Calvary was black. 20% of the U.S. Calvary during the Civil War was black. And they were such, such fierce fighters. They were such brave warriors that when the Indians encountered them, they named them the Buffalo Soldiers. They said, these people are something else. They're bad. They're like buffaloes. And when they came riding on their horses, the Indians would turn around and run and say, here come the Buffalo Soldiers. Well, I don't know if they all ran, but. And that group of Buffalo Soldiers organized in the Civil War died off, but the name was kept. And right through the Korean War, black Americans had regiments and battalions by that name. And then in World War I, 367 blacks participated and 171 were awarded the French Legion of Honor. And in World War II, beginning with the heroic acts of Dory Miller, a black who was on the USS Arizona when it was sunk, who trained his guns to the sky, and as the Japanese dropped their bombs, who had his anti-aircraft guns blazing away and fought until he died, and the U.S. Arizona was sunk, and he went down to the bottom of the ocean with his brothers. And in World War II, there was the famous triple nickel, the 555 of 555th Division of Black Paratroopers, the Tuskegee Airmen who flew 144 missions in Europe. And the Korean War also found us involved with 3,100 black soldiers who were killed in that war, the cause of which is still questioned by many, if not most. And in fact, the first major victory in Korea was at Yushan, and it was accomplished by an all-black military union or unit. But that's not all. There's another glaring omission in, in, in our brother's history I want to mention, and that has to do with the helpful inventions that African-Americans have contributed to our society's function. And we know about George Washington Carver and, and, the, and you know, all of the dyes and the, the foods and the processes that he, with his genius, was able to create. And we know about Madam C.J. Walker, do we not, with the hair products and the face creams and all of that. But we don't hear enough about Benjamin Banneker, 1731 to 1806, if you please, who invented the first functional clock or Charles Drew, 1904 to 1950, who gave us the first blood bank. It just might help our brother melt down some prejudice if he understood that it was Daniel Hale, a black man, who performed the first open heart surgery. And that it was Dennis Weatherly who gave us the automatic dishwasher detergent and Rufus Weaver who gave us the stair-climbing wheelchair 
If every time our brother sat in that chair, he could say, well, you know, a black man invented this. It might help our brother to know that every time he sits in a folding chair, that operation was invented by a black man. And every time he plays a guitar, to know that it was patented and invented by a man, a black man named Robert Fleming. That Virginia Hall gave us the embroidered fruit basket and Calvin Mays, the disposable syringe, and Debrilla Ratchford, the suitcase with wheels. It just might help. And of course, these are just samplings of a much longer list. But in addition to reminding our brother that his history is deficient in these and other ways as well, it might help to reduce prejudice, to let him also know that his surveys, his scientific surveys, are also deceiving. Not only is his history deficient, but his tests and his surveys are deficient. You see, his surveys show and prove that the IQ or intelligence quotient of blacks in America is less than that of whites. That's a fact. He can prove that. In fact, as late as 1994, there was developed something called the bell curve by Hernstein and Murray, which proves it. And in 1995, Jensen and Rustin came together with another study that shows, and this is factual, that shows that 80% of blacks in America, 80% have an intelligence IQ lower than the median for the rest of the country. That's what those tests show. But I'm here to tell you that our brothers ought to understand that those tests are deceiving. It's a fact. This is what the tests show. But the tests, like the history, is not to be taken at face value. And they have written many books back as far as de Gubineau and these people back in the 17th and 18th century, right on down to Darwin and all the rest, to show that the intelligence of the black in America was, was less, and they could prove it by scientific measures, and, and they, 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 they said it was a result of, of genus, genetic inheritance, and that this was all a matter of eugenics and genetics, and we're just born that way. But gradually, the light began to dawn, and fair-minded, objective researchers have come to realize that the deviations between the survey results that show black IQ less than our brothers can be explained in some logical means. And what really turned them on 
was the fact that they discovered that not only was the black IQ below 80% below the mean, median, but they also found that white Southerners' IQ was lower than northern whites. That whites in the South had a lower IQ than whites in the North. And they said, uh-oh, something must be wrong here. How can that be? If you're white, you're white. So how can you have less intelligence if you live below the Mason-Dixon? Then your brother who lives above the Mason-Dixon. Must be something. How do we explain that? And they got to talking and thinking and studying, and they arrived at the just and right conclusion that environmental and socioeconomic conditions have a lot to do with how people respond to these tests. They found also that the adult African-American brain is smaller than the adult white American brain on the average. And that's a fact. Although you look at our heads, you might not think it. <laughs> but they found that the black brain didn't grow as fast and as huge as the average one of our brother. And they said, you see, that proves it. Something's wrong with them. But then they found out that when the black baby and the white baby are born, their brains are the same. And they had to figure out there must be something that happens to that black child between the crib and maturity that keeps his intelligence quotient from growing as fast and as far as his white companion. And they started looking at prenatal conditions and postnatal conditions. And he discovered that children who are breastfed and cared for at home have a greater rate of growth and acceleration than those who don't, whose mothers have to work and who leave them alone. That latchkey children don't have the same rate of growth as others. And that children from privileged homes continue to develop stronger and faster. And even though they're the same when they come out of the crib, they have the same basic material that the socioeconomic conditions through which they grow have all to do with the rate of development and ability to comprehend. And as a result, many who are honest and many who are objective are now able to say, oh, we see these tests are deceptive. Not only are there socioeconomic conditions which are affecting the rate of growth and intelligence and comprehension, but even the language of the tests themselves, even the wording of the tests, these children who can't understand, as well as the others. And so our brothers have to understand, we've got to help them. We've got to help them understand not only is their history deficient, but their surveys are deceptive. And that includes all the things 
that we hear from time to time about welfare. The welfare statistics are deceptive. It is true that black Americans occupy 40% of the set-asides and entitlements, including food stamps. We get 40%, and our brother gets, along with other groups, the rest, but we are 12% of the population consuming 40% of the welfare. Something must be wrong with us. So they wrote a bunch of books and said we were lazy. They wrote a bunch of books, said all we wanted to do was lay around and, and put a hand out and that we are a victim. We have a victim society and mentality. But the fact of the matter is, and that with which I want to remind you today, is that we are just 50 years approximately away from the, the, the civil rights laws of the 60s of the last century. The last century gave us a lot of laws that gradually freed us and let us to vote, but full voting rights and the complete demolition of legal segregation did not come until 1965 when we got the Civil Rights Act under Johnson and before that the voting rights in 1964. So you run from 65 and take that 35 years and add another 15 or we're just 50 years out of the legal rules that kept us down that wouldn't let us vote and how can a people who were enslaved from 1619 to 1862, a total of 243 years, and from 1862 to 1965 could not have full freedoms? How can that people in 50 years overcome 346 years of oppression? And we must remind our brothers. We must remind our sick, prejudiced brothers that we are still recuperating. We're still recovering. We're, 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 still, we're still washing out of our system all the bad things that we, we learned and through which we were put in slavery and separate but equal and all the other laws, a three-fifths law that called us three-fifths of a human being and all the other laws that the country laid on us and we're still overcoming and it must be understood and these socioeconomic factors, if realized by our brother, I believe, would in fact help heal him. And you and I have an obligation to keep this matter in the forefront and to remind him of this very fact. And there's a third thing. We must, in addition to reminding our brother who has a sickness called racism in this United States of America, we must remind our sick brother, not only that is history 
is deficient. And that his statistics are deceiving. We must also remind him that his religion is distorted. And when I say that, I mean, we must let him know that we know better than the creature that they have made out of God as some high and holy being who demands keeping the Sabbath and doing tithe and living a clean life, but who turns his head to, to oppression in the community. The God who dwells where angels live in an antiseptic atmosphere in glory, where he enjoys all of the amenities of everlastingness and eternity, but does not see and has no program to overcome evil in the world today. And therefore, these Christians, which we are, and it has even been a part of the Seventh-day Adventist church, unfortunately, who say we can't do anything about it. We'll just, the hour is too late. The problem is too great. Let's sit around and wait. And when Jesus comes, he'll take care of everything. That's not the God of the Old Testament. That's not the God of Micah who said, do justice and love mercy. That's not the God of the Old Testament or the New Testament prophets who every time, almost, check it, almost every time they mention the righteousness of God, they also mention his care for the poor. Righteousness was defined in the Old Testament as God's taking care of the down and out. God's looking after the marginalized. God's hatred for injustice. God's hatred for mistrusting, for mistreating people. That is the God of righteousness of the word. And that is the God who came down and lived. And in Luke 4:18 said, I am here to set at liberty them that are bruised. And to deliver the captive. And when we separate as a church, when we separate social action from the work of the gospel, I hear it all the time. Well, that's not the work of the church, helping in the community. And I want to commend our pastor, Pastor Madden, who is a community-minded pastor. But those who believe that the church work is here and the community over here and they are separated and there the twain shall meet, do not square with the God that I know. The God of Israel was a God who expressed over and over again concern for the slave and concern for the poor. And you know, I, I love to read Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58, and I'm going to read a couple of verses. And I want you to look with me too, if you don't mind. Isaiah chapter 58. And we, 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 we are very, very quick, we Christians, to read that part, especially those of us who are Sabbath keepers, and you know it very, very well. 
where Isaiah says, I will make you to build the old waste places and you should build up the foundations of many generations and we have it all together. But even before God starts talking about building up the foundations of the generations and the Sabbath and all that, verse 6 says, is this not the fast that I have chosen? Don't go around fasting and looking hungry. God says, away with that if you don't have an interest in dealing with the poor and helping the needy. Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? That's the God I'm talking about. And that's what I mean when I say that our brother, not everybody, but as a rule, our brother in and out of our fellowship even, our brother has a distorted view of who God is and how God functions. And read the rest of it. Next part of verse 7. When you see the naked, that you do what? And hide not yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth. And there's more. But that is the God we serve. And I would like to suggest to you that we who are celebrating Black History Month can resolve to help our brother overcome his sickness if we can only get him to see that, in fact, his history is deficient. His statistics are deceiving. And his view of God as being this far away antiseptic creature apart from the evils and the problems of the, of the community and not just apart. I, I don't mean a God who goes around every Sabbath giving food to the hungry. That's good. That, I'm not knocking Elder Pruitt. You know, that's good. Everybody should be with Brother Pruitt, all right? I'm talking about somebody who goes after the thief who makes these people hungry. I'm talking about a God who says do justice and do justice is more than putting tourniquets on the wounded. Doing justice is going after the, the, the evil systems that bring, wounded, bring wounds to our community. I wouldn't buy an apple from a grocery store where they get all rotten food and sell it for a higher price and won't hire a black clerk. And I don't want to go to a bank where I put what little money I've got and I never see a black clerk. And I don't want to buy a car from a car dealer who never has a black salesman. Before the injustices take root, Mercy and justice should be together. And if we need to boycott, if we need to write letters, we, we need to do it and see to it that now we are not just on the back end of helping people, but as a church, we have an interest in addressing the causes of injustice. And finally, 
I would like to suggest that if we are going to help our brother in the ditch, our brother who's sick with racism, we need to counterman the stereotypes. You know what? If I were one of our brothers, I wouldn't want to be around some of us either. I, I kind of, you know, I kind of understand why our brother, many of them, think that we are a lower and a lesser people. Because of the way we act. What would you think if you looked up and somebody walked around with the pants down around their knees? <laughs> Must be an animal from somewhere. Where'd he come from? Hmm? And somebody with a beautiful black ebony skin with a red, white, and blue wig on walking down the street. Where these clouds come from anyway? Throwing McDonald's wrappers on their lawns, car leaking oil all down the street, making noise, get through the stop and boom box going boom, boom. If we're going to help our brothers, we need to clean up our acts. And get this, 75 out of every 100 black babies born, 75. As of every black, of every 100 black babies born, 75 are born with no husbands. What's this? What's up with that? Pardon the expression. <laughs> am I my brother's keeper? Yes. I am my brother's keeper. But in order to help my brother, I need to begin the revolution at home. And that's what 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 means when it says, if we don't help ourselves, we are worse than infidels. And it also goes to the church. It's the way we keep the church. It's the way we keep our homes. It's the support we give to the widows in the church. And I suggest it's support we give to the church school right here. Am I my brother's keeper? You know what it's like for me? A retiree with a little old general conference retirement, which isn't much. If I told you what it is, you would be shocked. Good thing I've got Social Security. But I am my brother's keeper. I'm not going to let some mother try to keep a child in church school while I get a, another new car. I'm going to drive that same old car, keep it as long as I can. 
I'm not going to get a bigger house and softer rugs and bigger hi-fis and beautify my property and keep buying more and more and more and aggrandizing myself. I am my brother's keeper. And if there's a mother or a father in this church school, Abundant Life Christian Academy that needs help, then it's my obligation. I am my brother's keeper. And I want to commend all of you who are already doing it. I want to encourage the rest of you who may not have started as yet or who may have started and you've gotten weary. I want to encourage you to keep up the good work. For I read, I asked the angel why simplicity had been shut out from the church and pride and exaltation come in. I saw that this is the reason why we have almost been delivered into the hand of the enemy. Said the angel, look ye, and ye shall see that this feeling prevails. Am I my brother's keeper? Again, the angel said, thou art thy brother's keeper. Thy profession, thy faith requires thee to deny thyself and sacrifice to God, or thou wilt be unworthy of eternal life. I am my brother's keeper. Now, there are two things I'd like to do, three, as I wind this up. Number one, I want you to think about your life as I have thought about mine. And make sure that we are responding correctly. And forget about for a moment that, you know, the racial thing is going to be going on and we can't really change that wholesale. We can do what we can, as I've mentioned, and maybe others. But there's something even more that you and I can do right now. And that's right here at Abundant Life. Tomorrow there's a planning meeting for the school. I hope to be in on it. But I'm going to pray that the Lord will give Pastor Madden and Dr. White and the others wisdom, all of our teachers, as they continue to build to protect our children. We are our brother's keepers. There should be no doubt as to what happens in public schools. Is there any doubt? Does anybody still want to argue that public school is as good for your children as church school? If so, there's something wrong with you. But if, by the grace of God, you hear the appeal today, I'm going to ask that you determine in your heart that when the school makes its appeal, my pastor Madden and the others say, let's do it. Let's continue our pleasures, that you will do it. You are your brother's keeper. Break her loose. You cannot continue to pile up interest on your accounts and build your own, own skyscrapers and forget that God says you are your brother's keeper. That's one thing. The other thing I'm going to do, I want to do, is to ask for as many as possible to join me in this organization that Pastor Madden mentioned earlier called Operation Reachback. Operation Reachback has work in San Francisco, San Diego, Los Angeles, Loma Linda area, the Inland Empire, in Philadelphia, in Detroit, 
We have a beautiful chapter we've just started in Atlanta and we've and some other places and we've had one here. The object black young men have been called the endangered species. 